Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, an Associate Professor of Economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Shelby Grossman. She received her PhD in government from Harvard University and was a professor at the University of Memphis before joining the Stanford Internet Observatory as a research scholar. Today, we're going to talk about her new book, The Politics of Order in Informal Markets, How the State Shapes Private Governance. So uh, welcome, Shelby. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Peter. Um, so why don't you start off and just tell us, you know, what, what are informal markets and, and why do they matter? Yeah. So when I talk about informal markets, I'm talking about physical marketplaces where a majority of traders have shops that are not registered with all levels of governments that they're supposed to be registered with. Um, so this doesn't necessarily imply that they're selling like illegal drugs or anything like that, but just that these are traders who maybe haven't registered their, their shops with the government. Um, and I think these markets are important to understand in part because a huge percent of global GDP is coming from the informal sector. And second, I think these markets are often really important political actors and they can hold a lot of political weight. So I think those are, are the two main reasons why they're important to understand. And when you say a market, you're saying actually like a physical location. And it sounds like not, not, like, a, not like a sort of bazaar of just like people you know, throwing up a, a stand, but, but something a little bit more permanent. Yeah. So more specifically, um, the, the unit of analysis in the book is actually a market association. So there are different ways market associations could, could work. So you could first imagine in your head like a traditional African market where people are selling tomatoes and fruits and vegetables. Um, and that market is, is physically delimited and there is a market association for that, for that area. But uh, there are other ways that associations can work. So you could have like a plaza, so a small multi-story building that has maybe a few dozen traders, and that plaza itself might have an association, or sometimes it might actually have more than one association. Okay. Um, yeah, so you did your research in, uh, in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, maybe just uh, for people who don't know that area, and I'm not even sure if I pronounced the city's name correctly, um, you could tell us more about, about, this, uh, about this city and, and the sort of um, economic and political context that, uh, that these markets are in? Yeah, so Lagos is the biggest city in Africa. It's really difficult to know exactly how many people live there, in part because it's a political question. So how many people live in certain states in Nigeria shapes how much revenue from oil that the state gets. So there can be political reasons to either undercount or overcount the exact number of people in Lagos. But by some estimates, about 25 million people live in, in Lagos. 
Um, and uh, Nigeria is a has a federal system of government, and so Lagos is one state within Nigeria. And interestingly, there are also local governments, and Lagos actually has 57 local governments. Um, and in some ways, local governments are pretty weak, and the power is really at the level of the state government. But actually, when it comes to markets, the local governments can be quite powerful because the local governments are constitutionally given the, the right to, quote unquote, maintain the, the markets. So these local governments are often really relevant political actors when it comes to these, these markets. So they're a level below the city government. I mean, is there, so there's like a, a mayor or something like that and, and city council, but then this is a like a local district council. What, what are they called? They're actually... There actually is no city government. Um, so Lagos is a state in Nigeria that includes the city of Lagos, but also some more rural areas. So it goes like state government where there's a governor, just like in the U.S., um, and then these local governments, which are called local governments and have a local government chairman who, who heads them, who is an elected person. That's so clear and specific. This is the local government. And I'm the chairman of the local government. Yeah. It's easier to keep track of. Um, okay, so uh, so you're looking at these these market organizations, so like associations uh, within like a specific plaza building where everyone's uh, in many cases kind of uh, quasi legal or not not fully legal um, in their possession of that space, uh, but doing like basically legitimate businesses, like you mentioned, you know, wine or you know, clothing or other things, um, and so yeah, but so who who uh, who sets up these market organizations and, and you know what do they do? Yeah, so these market associations are typically comprised of just a number of traders in the markets in the market who are elected by other traders to be the the leaders of the market. So um, one of the things that's really quite remarkable is like how similarly structured these these associations are. So most associations will have a market chairman. That position might be called different things. Sometimes it's called the market mother or the market father, if it's a more traditional market, um, or the market president. Um, then they'll often be like a, a vice chairman. There might be um, a, a treasurer. There might be a secretary for public relations who's responsibilities would include speaking to researchers like me about um, the about the market. Um, and sometimes these leadership positions have terms and, and term limits. So like every two years, the traders will vote again on who's going to be the chairman. Sometimes it's a position that is held for life, which is interesting. Um, and the associations are often really pretty formal. So many associations have written constitutions that specify the policies in the market for, you know, breaking certain certain rules. So for example, a market might have a rule that you can't touch a customer to try to get their attention. Like you can't, you know, pull on their shirt or something. And there will be like a fine that you have to pay to the market association if you're if you're caught doing that. Very often there'll be um, a fine if you are caught having a dispute with another trader in the market and you did not bring it to the market leader to, to mediate. Um, so, you know, these are informal, but also often, you know, quite formal in, in other ways. So, okay, so th this isn't the main thrust of your book, but I'm curious, like, how, how these things get set up, especially, like, the idea of, like, I mean, someone builds a building or, like, has, has a space and start and traders start showing up there. Is it, like, the, is it 
originally like a the owner of the space or like who would uh i guess i'm curious about that moment where someone decides that a leader is is needed and um uh and especially the idea and then then within that the idea that there's someone like elected for life um, which like if they owned the place i could kind of get that but it's it's surprising me to hear that they're like elected but then they're going to serve for an indefinite period it's a good question um this was i was really curious about this as well and it's really hard to figure out in part because many of these markets have been around for for decades so it can be hard to get their their origin story but i kind of get the sense that what happens is Let's say there is a building that is a market building and uh, local government has the right to collect fees from, from market traders. And so probably some guy from the local government starts coming around and is going shop to shop and is collecting these like random arbitrary fees. And the traders start talking to each other and they're like, hey, this doesn't seem fair. How come you paid this when I had to pay this? And maybe they thought, hey, why don't we find someone who is going to negotiate with the local government um, to make these these fees more more reasonable? And often in that negotiation, one trader will become the person who collects all the fees from the traders in the market and passes it on to the local government. So my my sense is that is the origin story of of many markets, though in other places, you're right, um, if particularly if they are on land that is privately owned, the the landlord um, may be the, the head of the market, though that's actually pretty uncommon. Normally, the landlord is kind of absentee. Um, and so I think more often it's the traders just coming together in, in response to, to government predation to, to, to organize themselves. And so for public land, is that like, are the fees like including like a stall rental or something? Or, or uh, I mean, you mentioned like some of these are like plaza buildings, which... Um, so like the government built them and then allowed traders to set up in them or, or how does that happen? Exactly. Yeah. So whether you're in a market that's on private land or public land, you still have to pay rent. Um, but if your market is on local government land, you're going to be paying rent directly or indirectly to the local government. But then everyone, whether you're on in a market that's on public or private land, is going to be paying certain fees to the local government. So there is, for example, a radio TV fee. And even if you don't have a radio or a TV in your shop, you have to pay this this small fee. Um, there's also just going to be like a general annual trader fee that you that you pay. Um, and yeah, so this and this holds for uh, you know there are plazas that are that are publicly owned and privately owned. There are open air markets that are privately owned and publicly owned. So there's a lot of interesting variation. Okay. Um, okay. So these organizations. Um, you mentioned uh, so they're they're collecting fees um, from the you know on behalf of the government in many cases uh, and and by doing that they make it you know more systematic um, probably help you know, avoid corruption or kind of abuse in that respect um, and uh, then you also said like they may enforce rules within the market so like not tugging at people's sleeves or whatever which um, you know is uh, would maybe make the market more attractive to potential customers. Um, and what else, um, what else do they, what else do they do? Uh, you, you mentioned they actually require you to resolve disputes with them. You can't, so why, why is that a good thing? Why not just let traders work it out amongst themselves? Maybe let's start with that. Yeah. So, um, it's not necessarily a good thing, um, in part because there's just a lot of variation in how well-governed these markets are, which is 
the main outcome that I'm exploring in this book. So you can imagine it wouldn't be a good thing if the market leader is predatory and maybe biased toward certain traders over over others. Um, So basically, you have kind of some market leaders that are really quite bad for for trade. So they are extorting from their own traders um, and they are maybe actively trying to foster like distrust within the market. So you have that at one extreme. And then at the other extreme, you have market leaders that are doing so many fascinating activities that are really supportive of trade in the market. So for example, a market leader might um, provide information to traders about dubious suppliers who they should avoid trading with. So you know, maybe a market leader hears about a wine supplier who has mislabeled the wine that he's selling to claim that they're from one country when in fact they're from a different country. And so a market leader might share that information with traders so all traders can avoid avoid being duped. Um, so there's really a lot of variation in, in kind of the types of activities that the, that the market leadership does and whether they support trade in the market or whether they're just making everything harder for the traders. Okay. Yeah. So, so just, um, yeah, so you're really building on this literature or it's, or moder- moderating this literature that, um, you know, from people like, uh, Doug North, Barry Weingast, uh, Paul Milgram, um, Abner Greif, uh, and Eleanor Ostrom, uh, to name some of the, the more famous, uh, people in that very large literature who've argued that, uh, you know, often institutions will sort of emerge like, you know, governments are great if you have a good government that does everything right, but then, you know, if the government is, you know, not yet or simply is unable to fulfill what we might think of as its functions for, for uh, promoting, you know, mutually beneficial um, market transactions, then uh, these these kinds of organizations can can emerge and, and take over that role. Um, and you say, you know, so in some cases they do, um, but then in other cases you're saying they're just kind of extortive and, and exploitative, kind of like, kind of like just another bad government. So but, but in this case, I mean, you mentioned some of them are elected and uh, also some of them are, um, well, so if they're elected, that seems like that would give the traders some pressure on them. Uh, and then also, you know, to, to go back to the old you know, exit voice and loyalty, like, why do you stay at a marketplace if this guy is just, you know, coming around and favoring the other people and collecting extra fees from you or, or whatever else? Yeah. So there's a lot to what you just said. I'm going to break it down a bit. Um, mm-hmm. So first... Uh, yeah, let me just clarify that there are there's a whole spectrum of options. So the market leader can extort, the market leader can do things that are great for trade, and the market leader can also be kind of laissez-faire and not really do much of much of anything. So maybe they're just not even around the market that much. Um, so there's a whole, kind of whole spectrum of, of possibilities. Um, and yeah, I, I'm definitely speaking to the, the literature you mentioned, and I think my main contribution to that literature is that I think not always, but sometimes there is an assumption that if the state is not doing contract enforcement, private groups will step in to fill that gap and provide private contract enforcement. And what I'm arguing is that that just doesn't always happen. And we can't assume that that's going to happen. Um, We also can't assume that kind of information sharing about fraudsters is costless. So I think sometimes the literature suggests that, oh, if a trader gets cheated by a supplier, 
that information is just immediately going to spread to all the other traders in the market. And that's just not what happens empirically, in part because I think sometimes the role of competition in these spaces is, is overlooked. So in the markets in Lagos, traders are often you know, actively competing with each other. So you're selling used clothing right next to another shop that's also selling used clothing. And so not only are you maybe not going to tell your neighbor when you get screwed over by a supplier, maybe you actually want your neighbor to get cheated by that supplier because you're, you're in competition with them. So I think that's kind of one of my, what I'm trying to make as one of the main theoretical contributions of the book is just to highlight the important role of, of competition and how it makes information sharing really tricky and just to underscore the importance of, of private group leaders. Okay, so two more points. So you brought up, you know, this the these market elections, and you're like, you know, I don't get it. If there are elections, like, why are why is why are these elections resulting in in predatory leaders? And if they do happen to result in predatory leaders, why wouldn't these leaders just be voted out? So I think this is a, a good question. Um, and it's I mean, let me a just bigger... say I'm not complete. You know, I am trained as a political scientist, and I've watched my you know my own country. It's, I, you know, I'm not saying that like elections always get you great people. Um, but uh, yeah, just it's at least at least in the theory, that's supposed to be something they do. Of course. Yes, I maybe characterized your, your question a bit too much. Um, yeah. So as, as you say, it, it is a bigger question that people ask with regard to with regard to states. Um, and I do think some of the explanations at the private governance level are, are similar. I think in part what's going on in this context is, um, first of all, people don't always like make the best decisions. So. I went to a market once where that had one of these leaders who was very laissez-faire and she just like didn't do much of anything. And I asked traders, I was like, you know, you're complaining about her, but you've been reelecting her. So, so why are you voting for her again? And people would say, oh, she has a, a master's degree from the UK. So she'll be better at like negotiating with the local government because she's educated like them. And I think in this context, I, you know, I understand the logic, but empirically what was happening was this woman just like wasn't that interested in the market, maybe in part because she was kind of slightly higher educated. Um, so I think people sometimes make those sorts of mistakes. But I think the other thing that happens is some of these predatory leaders, just as happens with states, will... Um, you know, do whatever they can to consolidate their their rule. So um, in one of the markets where I was somehow magically able to get people to tell me these these stories of corruption, the market leader had basically just bought off the kind of local chairman within the market. So this was a market that had um, kind of local chairman for different parts of the market in addition to the main chairman. And the main chairman had literally just given envelopes of cash to the the local chairman to get the local chairman's support in the elections and the local chairman would then mobilize their own traders to, to vote for this guy. Additionally, this one particular market leader had spread rumors that his main opposition challenger was gay, which in this context is a, is a really bad thing. Um, so I think that's part of the explanation. Um, and then just to get to your, your last question, which I personally think is one of the most fascinating questions, like let's say you're in one of these markets with like a predatory leader, why on earth would you would you stay there? Um, and I think there are there are two main explanations. So the first explanation is that there is a phenomenon in Lagos, but also more broadly in the world called advance rent. And so what this means is that in Lagos, if you want to rent a shop, you have to pay two years advance rent upfront. 
So this is an insane amount of money. I think if I recall, the average rent is about $2,000 a year. So this means you have to cobble together $4,000 US dollars, um, the equivalent in Naira, uh, to, to rent a shop. However, once you've been in the shop for two years, you only have to pay advance, advance rent for one year for all subsequent years. So this hugely disincentivizes moving to a new, a new market because you, if you move, you're going to have to cobble together the two years advance rent as opposed to the, the one year. And um, if you leave, do you, like, are, are they paying, are they re-upping that like every month or, or could you wait till the end of your year and then and then ditch and at least have, or would you actually be forfeiting your a year of uh, rent if you if you decided to go somewhere else? You're never going to get any money back. So if you pay two years rent upfront, like that's what you pay before you have the right to move into the shop on day one, and you're never going to get that back. Right, but it's or but it's being counted towards your rent over the next two years. Oh, exactly. Yes. So like, could you? I mean, I just think about the, the size of the barrier. I mean, obviously, having to start with the two years at a new place would be a big upfront investment. But I'm curious, like if, if I, after, you know, my first year realized things were not going so well, could I just wait till precisely 24 months had passed since I moved to this location and then, and then be basically down to zero. So at least I'd have not have lost that investment or do yes, they like, definitely. Keep... Okay. No, that's the, and that's a thing that happens. Um, for sure. The challenge is like, it's just not always easy to get great information about conditions in, in other markets, in part because of this competition factor that, you know, these markets are so secretive that people aren't really incentivized to give prospective renters accurate information about, about conditions in the market. Um, so I think that's another hurdle. And then the final thing is I think there's just often a lot of hope. So, you know, I'll talk to traders who are in these badly governed markets and I'll be like, why on earth are you still here? It sounds awful. And they'll say things like, you know, oh, I just have hope that I, you know, I think things will get better. It's just because of X, Y, Z factor, you know, business is really going to improve soon. So I think people sometimes um, there's some motivated reasoning going on where they they think that things will will get better, um, even if they might not. Okay. Um, so then I think the next next uh, big part of your book is trying to explain, you know, why some of these places work so badly and some of them work well. So part of why they work badly is because they can get away with it if if people are you know if there's enough competition um, and so no one's uh, and people don't have a good exit option um, but but what is it that that leads them to actually work well when that does happen yeah so you're just to make sure I understand the question you're asking kind of under what conditions like the markets are are governed better yes yes yeah so I think you know the argument that I make in the book is that conventional wisdom might suggest that especially in a place like Nigeria that has a reputation for being so corruptly governed that someone might think, you know, private good governance would thrive when this kind of government just keeps its hands out of group affairs and doesn't, doesn't get involved. But my argument is, is kind of the opposite, that I actually think it's the threat of governments getting involved in these markets that actually promotes private good governance. Um, and so I think there are two reasons for this. The first is that when you have the, the prospect of a, like an interventionist government hanging over you, you want to do everything you can to reduce disputes in the market because disputes provide opportunities for meddling, like rent-seeking local officials to come into your market um, and, and interfere. So this is what would motivate a market leader to, for example, like spread information about fraudsters because 
fraudsters are going to lead to disputes, which is going to lead to more and more government interference. So that's like the first mechanism that you're going to keep your house in order as a way to keep the government out. And then the second mechanism is that a market leader that faces a, a predatory government, the way to push back against that government is to be able to mobilize all of your traders to protest certain government decisions. And if you are extorting from your traders, you are not going to have their sympathies. And so you won't be able to mobilize them to, to fight back against the government. So it's in the face of this predatory government that you, um, you want to maintain the sympathies of your traders. So that's kind of my, my argument that under some conditions, these, the prospect of, of state interference can actually motivate private good governance. Okay, so that's kind of that that external threat that gets everyone to to unite and stop squabbling. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So so tell me, um, uh, yeah, tell me how you how you did the research. Um, you know, the informal sector is is notoriously hard to to find anything out about. You know, you can go around and you know, I mean, even if you just even just going around and talking to people, people are going to be very reluctant to tell you. You know, I don't know if it's more or less reluctant as you know, as someone who's who's uh, a foreigner, but like to tell you like you know all the all the dirt of what's really going on how things really happen especially if you know a chunk of what they're doing is is illegal or, or uh, quasi-legal um, so so how did you do it yeah so um, it was really hard <laughs> um, so I developed the theory by really just like doing a year of field work um, I think the the first chunk of field work I did wasn't super systematic it was really just like going around and trying to talk to traders and market leaders um, to like develop some intuition for like what explains these these outcomes um, and I think for that part of it it was really just um, you know trying to talk to people each day and many days I did not succeed in talking to anyone. Um, and it can be, it can be really tricky. Like Lagos is just a, a really difficult city. It's very expensive. So I might have spent like $50 on taxi fare trying to go to this one market that I had heard was interesting and I got there and no one was willing to talk to me. That happened like not infrequently. Um, but every once in a while you just meet someone who for unclear reasons is, is willing to, to chat. Um, these markets are so secretive for so many reasons, but you know, one problem is that oftentimes uh, like foreign businessmen will come to these markets and claim to be academic researchers when they're not academic researchers. And they will, you know, use this guise of being an academic to try to get information on pricing or those sorts of things. And then, you know, that foreigner's fixer will come back to the market the next day and be like, hi, I just want everyone to know that guy said he was an academic, but actually he is in business himself and is trying to start importing phones from China directly to compete with you all. So those things have happened not infrequently. And it just, you know, leads Wait, the to the fixer who's working for the guy would come back and tell everyone exactly. as a threat or, or just because once his, his, boss who paid him for the day was gone. He was just like spilling the beans. The latter, just spilling okay, the beans. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, it's just, these are really secretive, distrustful environments for, for good reason. Um, so yeah, then, I mean, every once in a while, you know, people would, would talk to me. Um, and I, I think I kind of like developed a relationship with a handful of people over time. So that helped. So then after I had developed the intuition for the theory, um, I tested it with an uh, original survey of market traders and also some in-depth case studies. Uh, so the survey of market traders, I think, was was pretty novel. I ran it in collaboration with my colleague Meredith Starts, 
And we basically conducted an original census of about 50,000 shops in, in Lagos. And um, I can talk more about this, but we basically used that, that census to conduct, I think, one of the most representative surveys that's ever been conducted of, of informal traders. Um, and I asked, we asked traders, you know, questions about how well governed the marketplace was, what their association was. Um, and then I used the survey data to select particular interesting markets to do deep dives into later on. Okay. And so how did you, um, so tell me more about like with the quantitative data, how did you use that to, uh, to test your hypothesis? Yeah. So basically I, it was, you know, a very kind of simple analysis. I was primarily just looking at the relationship between whether the market was located on local government land versus private government land and how well governed the traders report that their associations were. Um, and I think an I immediate think you reaction- missed, You said local government land versus private government land, or did you just, did you just mean private land? I meant private land, sorry, okay. thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, one reaction I often get is like, you know, is it is it really that likely that traders are going to be willing to complain about their their market leaders? Like maybe they'll be too afraid to do that. Um, but that was not my my experience in this context. Um, people were really excited about the chance to to complain about their about their market leaders. Um, so yeah, that was like the primary analysis. There were a number of things that were kind of analytically complicated. So the main one was I wanted to like cluster standard errors at the market association level for my analysis, but that required figuring out which traders belong to the same market association. And this mm -hmm. turned out to be really complicated. So the 60 second version is, you know, we had a question on the survey that said, what is your main market association? And it was an open response question. And so you can imagine one trader says they belong to the Balogun Business Association, and another trader says they belong to the Balogun Business Marketplace. Are those two things the same association? It, it wasn't clear, and I didn't want to make any assumptions. So I actually had research assistants go back to many of these traders to ask them if the association was the same as this other association that was called something slightly different. Um, so I think that was kind of time consuming, but I think it's a model for people to use going forward if they're interested in in carefully measuring group membership, whether we're talking about like informal slums that also have kind of like complicated associations um, or like resident associations, which I think are, are understudied, but are but are similarly interesting. Yeah, especially I guess I, I know like a lot of you know in other contexts, like in China, I know people working on informal associations are often like looking at a specific village. So then you basically know because they're in the village, but in the urban setting, that must get uh, much more complicated because uh, exactly no clear yeah. geographic, you know, location that people are uh, stuck to. Exactly. Um, wow. Well, this is, this is a really cool research. Um, so uh, the last thing I, um, I wanted to ask you about um, is uh, you were, uh, well, actually I asked you, I asked you before we started whether you thought you might be able to speculate on this and, uh, um, you know, but was thinking about how, this relates to developed countries or kind of, you know, markets more broadly or trade organizations. Um, I do see some parallels. Like I was thinking about, you know, the, I hope I don't have this story wrong. I didn't double check it, but like the motion picture association of America, you know, they set up their rating system of G, P, G, R, and X for movies because they were, um, you know, as the industry was developing, they realized that um, there was potential pressure for government regulation to come in. And then, you know, we also see similarly with, you know, 
uh, companies like like Uber and the sort of uh, so-called sharing economy or other platform businesses that um, they're they're setting up institutions um, to uh, police. I guess partly partly their own behavior as the organizer, but also um, uh, to you know, especially when I think about like Facebook, like the kind of communications that go on there. Um, they're trying to police it in order to avoid um, greater pressures for some external force to come in um, and uh, and threaten them. So I don't know. So that that's that was my kind of loose analogy. But I mean, do you think there's uh, anything to learn from your case um, about developed countries, or or if not, like what is it about the scope conditions that kind of makes this really um, you know something for for these kind of informal markets in the developed world, but but too much of a stretch to to try to bring it to these other contexts. I definitely agree with what you just said. So I think that um, in developed countries, the prospect of state regulation can improve private governance. Um, so you're talking about social media companies. Um, I was reading this this book that just came out called "An Ugly Truth about about Facebook," and one of the anecdotes in the in the book is that. Uh, when Facebook decided to come out in favor of government regulation of social media platforms because they believed it to be inevitable anyways. So why not why not get ahead of it and kind of propose um, the book argues like you know light touch light touch moderate light touch regulation. So I definitely agree with that and I, I think that that mechanism holds broadly. I think there are some slightly tighter scope conditions though on the theory as a whole. so, I think first, you know, private contract enforcement just isn't that important when you're in a country like the U.S. where the courts are, are more reliable than they are in, in Nigeria. That's not to say that it's it's never um, useful. So, for example, there's there's great research by people like Barack Richmond on um, private governance and private contract enforcement in the diamond industry, which for various reasons related to the product it's hard for American courts to enforce contracts. Um, but I think in general, like this, this role of private contract enforcement just isn't that important in countries that have stronger rule of law. I think the other important scope condition to note is that um, I don't think this argument applies in really weak states. So in places like um you know, maybe in some points in time, like Somalia, I think for the argument to work, you need like an organized state that you can negotiate with. Um, and these markets are able to negotiate with with local government officials. But you could imagine that in certain countries that that would not be the case. Yeah, and I guess one one difference maybe also is that the the you mentioned, you know, they're, they're negotiating with local officials who are in more of a predatory role, whereas uh, at least in examples I gave in the US, it was not that everyone would agree with what the government's trying to achieve, but they'd agree with like the broad goal of like there's there's sort of a need for or or a reason to value some kind of regulation, and uh, you know so it may or may not be good in that case that that uh, private organization was um, trying to get ahead of that to preempt it. Um, I would push back a little bit though on the um, uh, the the private enforcement, although again I'm not totally sure about the link, but I mean you know I think about Uber and Airbnb and a lot of these you know they are really uh, if you felt like you had to, if things went badly enough on your Uber ride or your Airbnb that you actually had to engage in a lawsuit with the, the provider operating on the platform, that would be pretty extreme. And I think it's pretty rare. So um, there is an element where they've you know, succeeded in setting up uh, marketplaces where um, there's, there's a remarkable degree of kind of anonymous trust through, or not, not anonymous, you know, they kind of made it 
de-anonymized it by setting up reputation systems and things like that. Yeah. So just to jump in quickly, yeah. I uh, I think the thing that makes Uber a little different is the disputes are not business to business. So I think business to business disputes are are slightly different just because this competition comes into play, this secrecy comes to play, comes into play. Um, so I think incentives are are slightly different. And I mean, there are there are their own like. Um, when you don't have business to business disputes, when you have like consumer to business disputes, there are lots of other incentive problems that are that are really interesting. So, for example, there is like great research on dispute resolution on Airbnb um, that shows that when you pay people to review the Airbnb place that you stayed at, the nature of the reviews changes systematically. So I think those have have their own issue. But I, I do think there's something like slightly specific about this business to business dynamic that kind of changes incentives in a like qualitatively different way than than the kinds of disputes that you're describing. But for sure, like I'm with you that it's very unlikely that someone who takes an Uber ride is ever going to bring that dispute to to the courts or that would be like super unusual. And so in that context, like private dispute resolution matters a lot. But I guess I see your point. So just to, to try to flesh it out and make sure I'm getting the distinction, um, you know, in, you know, if we're both wine merchants in 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 Lagos, then I kind of, if I, if I know that there's some person who will make place a big order with you and then run off with it and not pay you, I might kind of take a certain glee in that or recognize like, Hey, maybe that'll bankrupt my biggest comp- competitor. Whereas like the Uber driver or the Airbnb host, you know, they may or may not want to, you know, take advantage of someone, but they're not, if they have a bad customer or if I go to a bad Airbnb, I'm not like thinking, haha, I hope someone else gets screwed over by this person. There's, there's kind of more of a, I mean, not not like a unity, but I guess, you know, as customers, we kind of all just mostly want good, good service. Um, and there's not this desire to, to uh, cause harm. So it's a different kind of, of competition there. Yeah. And it's like, it's not clear if you had a really good Uber ride, it's not clear that you would ever have an incentive to say it was a bad ride. Whereas if you purchase something from a supplier on Alibaba, for example, you actually might have an incentive to say the supplier is a fraudster, even if they're actually a great supplier because of that, that competition. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I started a paper actually, uh, and never, never, never got good enough results to finish it, but, but kind of exploring this issue that, you know, the other aspect of that is if you, um, if you actually start complaining about someone else, then people know you have a dispute, but they may not know actually who is at fault. So, you know, all they did like, and, and because, especially if they believe that everyone's just trying to get advantage of everyone else all the time, then uh, if you're someone who has uh, a lot of arguments with, uh, with your suppliers or whatever, they may suspect it's actually not about the suppliers, it's about you. So that might reduce uh, everyone's willingness to do business with you. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that part of it's super interesting. Yeah. Um, so, uh, all right. So um, thanks for sharing about this book. Um, so why don't you just uh, update us on, on what you're doing now? So you're now a research scholar at the Stanford Internet Observatory. And I was kind of dragging you into talking about the um, internet economy there a little bit. But but tell us more about what the Internet Observatory is and, um, and what you're doing there. Yeah. So um, the Stanford Internet Observatory is a research program that aims to study ways that the Internet can be abused to cause human harm. So this is partly disinformation, um, you know, where people are using, for example, Twitter in the way it's supposed to be used to like create a, a tweet. They're not 
hacking Twitter or anything like that. Um, but the content of the tweet is maybe intentionally designed to, to cause harm. Um, but we look at other types of internet abuse as well. Uh, so we have looked at the spread of non-consensual um, intimate imagery on the internet. Um, I have a project I'm working on related to self-harm queries. So if you search suicide-related terms on Google versus Bing versus DuckDuckGo, what kind of content is are those platforms surfacing? Um, and I guess just to talk briefly about one project that I'm working on that is somewhat related to the book, um, I have a project on looking at these same traders. So the traders that I looked at for the book, we've since surveyed them uh, four more times. And uh, most recently, we asked them questions about COVID misinformation and willingness to get to get vaccinated. And mm -hmm. so this is obviously not like a nationally representative sample. This is a very specific sample of informal traders in, in Lagos. But I think the findings are, are somewhat interesting. So the main finding is that there isn't like a type of person that is more likely to believe COVID misinformation in general. However, there are factors that predict belief in a certain type of COVID misinformation, namely anti-government COVID misinformation. And so not surprisingly, supporters of the opposition PDP party are more likely to believe anti-government COVID misinformation. So this is stuff like, oh, the government is installing 5G around the country as a way to um, you know, control us and things that look like symptoms of COVID are actually symptoms of, of 5G. Um, so that's the, the first main finding. And then the second main finding, which I think is really odd and is not at all what we suspected, is that there is no relationship between belief in misinformation and willingness to get vaccinated. In fact, men in our sample are most likely to believe misinformation, but also most likely to want to get vaccinated. Um, so I think that's a, a really interesting finding as well. Huh, yeah, that is surprising. It, I mean, is the is is the misinformation different there compared to here? I mean, here obviously a lot of the misinformation or or you know things that lead to vaccine hesitancy is like maybe not understanding the science of vaccines or uh, you know having ideas about what the vaccine will do to you that are not based on any kind of you know uh, reality. But um, so then you can see that would feed directly into uh, being being reluctant. But but are they are they believing r bad rumors about vaccines and yet still getting vaccines, or is it that it's different kinds of mis misinformation? Yeah, I mean, I'm not totally sure. So some of the misinformation is identical to the U.S. misinformation. So there's like the Bill Gates COVID misinformation that you know we have here as well. Some of it is definitely specific to Nigeria. So there's one particular piece of misinformation that says the federal government took. Al-Majuris, so like the people in northern Nigeria who go to school to study Islam, people, the government took Al-Majuris who are infected with COVID and sent them to the southeastern part of the country to spread COVID there. So that's like a very Nigeria-specific um, hmm. you know, piece of misinformation. I think one thing that might be going on is that we didn't ask about vaccine-specific misinformation. So maybe if we had, we would have seen a correlation there. But I think it's still interesting, even if that would be the case, that you would think that there would be a correlation between regular COVID misinformation and vaccine misinformation. Um, I mean, another possibility is just that we had to ask this question as a, as a hypothetical because we asked about um, willingness to get the vaccine after the vaccines had been developed, but before they were available in Nigeria. And um, people in many parts of the world often have a hard time answering hypothetical questions. So it's possible our measurement is a little bit imperfect. Um, so I don't know if that's one other possible explanation. Huh. 
Well, that's great that you're still, uh, you know, able to keep in touch with this, uh, you know, really unique um, survey survey population and uh, and get you know stay with them for for follow up studies of various kinds. Um, yeah, well. we feel we feel really lucky that the traders are kind of still willing to to talk with us like so many years later. It's definitely the funnest part of this project to have these long standing relationships with them. Yeah, no, that is a, that is a great part of field work is getting to know people, uh, you know, in very very different parts of the world and uh, and develop a, a trusting relationship with them. Um, okay, well, uh, that's about all the time we have. Uh, thanks so much for for being on the show. I really enjoyed having you. Thanks so much, Peter. I appreciate your time.